and the end of the age, but also what sign? What's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus has spent the first half up to chapter 24, verse 35, talking about what signs, what markers signal that the coming of the Son of Man is near and the turn of the age is coming. But starting in verse 20, chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus has started to address the first question, when? When is it going to happen? And Jesus answered that question last week in chapter 24, verse 36, by saying, no one knows, not even the Son, but the, the Father only. That's what we most want to know, right? When is it going to happen? Uh, can we figure it out? Can we set the dates? Kind of like the disciples and Jesus saying, don't worry about that. You don't know. Only the Father knows. But that's not the sum total of Jesus' response, because what he then does from verse 36, really verse 37 and on, and we started to see this last week, is not so much knowing the timing, but how do you live now in light of what is going to happen? It's going to happen sometime. It, um, Jesus has given markers of, Jesus, uh, of his return uh, but, the, but what Jesus is more interested in, less about timing and how do you live now? You see, what Jesus has begun to say is, yes, the time of your master's arrival is unknown, but that just doesn't mean you respond any which way. That doesn't mean you don't do nothing. There are several things you do, and we started in on that list last week. The time of your master's arrival is unknown, so in Jesus' comparison with the time of Noah, keep awake to escape sweeping judgment. If you see, if you're unprepared, if you're unaware, if you essentially live like everyone else in the world, yeah, maybe Jesus is coming, but it doesn't fundamentally change my life in any sort of way. You're going to be swept away in judgment. You're going to be shown to be a false disciple and swept away in judgment, just like those in Noah's day. But then Jesus also said this, you, you don't know the time of your master's arrival, so keep prepared to guard against being stolen away. Jesus switched that imagery from then that comparison from the time of Noah to uh, like a thief in the night. Jesus is going to be like a thief to those who are unprepared, who are unaware, who are sleeping. And he's going to steal away what is most precious to them. Those who are asleep, those who are living for themselves. Jesus is essentially going to come and steal what is most precious to them this life here and now. So you need to stay awake. Keep prepared. You don't know when he's coming, but you know that he is coming. So keep prepared. Just like awaiting for uh, a burglar coming in the middle of of the night. But then that, that, that kind of answers the question, well, okay, stay prepared, keep alert, keep awake, but what do we do? What does that look like? Jesus gave part of that answer last week in um, verses 45 through 51 in chapter 24, and he essentially said, keep nourishing fellow disciples. That's part of what you're supposed to do while you're waiting. Your job is to nourish fellow disciples, not play the owner, not play the master, not think that you, it's about you, but you are to nourish your fellow disciples. But then in the next couple parables, the parable of the virgins and the parable of the talents, Jesus uh, fleshes that out more. He fleshes out more. What does it look like to keep prepared? What are you supposed to be doing during this time? And really all of this is under the big idea, both last week and this week and next week. All of this is under the main heading of this, this big idea, stay faithful because the time of your master's arrival is unknown. If you were to boil down what Jesus says in this section, all the different pictures and comparisons, the call is to stay faithful. The call is to work faithfully, 
as a disciple because the time of your master's arrival is unknown. You don't know, but that doesn't, that's not an excuse for laziness. That's not an excuse for apathy. That's not an excuse for abusing the time. Rather, it's a call to stay faithful. And so we continue with that idea this morning. We're only going to get to the parable of the virgins. I thought maybe we could get to the parable of the talents, but it's not going to happen. So we're only going to get to the first point in your outline today. But it really continues that list. The time of your master's arrival is unknown. So what do you do? Well, the parable of the virgins will, say, it will t- teach us this. Keep wisely prepared during the long delay of your master. Keep wisely prepared during the long delay of your master. That, I changed a couple words in what's in your bulletin versus what I'm saying to you this morning. Um, it's the hazard of creating an outline on Tuesday when um, you still got study to do. But keep wisely prepared during the, during the long delay of your master. And what we have in verses 1 through 13 are another comparison. That's what a parable is. It's a comparison. You can call it an allegory, so to speak. Uh, not every element has a direct connection to reality, but uh, many do. We've seen Jesus do this in Matthew 13 and elsewhere. And really, to be able to hand a parable like this, what we need to do is understand the imagery, because all of the stories, all of the comparisons that Jesus uses uh, are, is imagery that would have been well-known to the people of that time. We have to do a little bit more work because we're separated in terms of distance and history and culture and those sorts of things. So the first thing we're going to do as we walk through this is just to understand the imagery, just to understand the story. That way we can understand the correspondence, the lesson, the comparison that Jesus is drawing between this real life scenario and what it has to do with regard to his coming. So let's go ahead and start looking at this parable. Look at verse, chapter 25, verse 1. At that time... The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Now, I'll remind you of a couple things. First, the word then there, or that little conjunction, it's drawing a connection with what came before. But basically what Jesus is saying, it's this is at the same time of the stuff I've already been talking about. That's how he's using the word then here. So he's been talking about his coming. He's been talking about his return. He's been talking about the coming of the Son of Man. And so he says, at that same time, the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's kind of interesting because we've heard Jesus talk about the kingdom of heaven throughout Matthew, but he hasn't really mentioned it directly uh, recently. But effectively, what he's saying here is, hey, when we talk about the coming of the Son of Man, Daniel 7, he comes with the clouds, trumpet blasts, everything, and he's coming again. Uh, And that's going to be the signal of the turn of the age when the Son of Man, the Messiah, comes to reign over Jerusalem and all the world. And Really, Jesus is saying, yeah, this is the same time as the establishment of the kingdom. That's the same time as the establishment of the kingdom. In fact, if you were to fast forward just a bit to chapter 25, verse 31, you would see this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is sharing the throne of his Father in heaven currently at this time, but he is not yet on the messianic throne of David over the whole world. That doesn't happen until what he says in verse 31. And so what Jesus is doing, he's drawing this comparison between the kingdom of heaven and his coming because they happen at the same time. Now, when he draws this comparison, the kingdom of heaven is like... 10 virgins. We've already seen this. It's not like he's saying, okay, the kingdom of heaven is the 10 virgins. He's saying it's like this whole situation he's about to lay out with the 10 virgins in this story. So let's get the details. It'll be like 10 virgins 
who took their torches and went to meet the bridegroom. Now already, in those simple statements, a situation would have been brought to mind in Jesus' hearers at that time. First century Palestinian Jewish hearers. When they hear about ten virgins and lamps and going out to meet a bridegroom, they would have thought about a, a village wedding. Okay, they're talking about a wedding scenario. So let's, let's take a moment and kind of paint the picture or the general scenario that Jesus is alluding to. When you have a wedding in a village at that time, it's a whole village kind of a thing. In general, most people in the village are going to be involved in the wedding. And the way this worked is, yes, there was a betrothal between the groom and the, um, and the bride about, uh, about a year or so ahead of time. But what would happen is uh, when the wedding time came, towards the evening and towards dark, the groom would go from his house, his dwelling, and he would go to the house of the bride's parents. And what they would ha happen there is there would be kind of this final negotiation between uh, settling the marriage. So, you know, how much dowry is going to be paid? Uh, you know, there's kind of final negotiations and settlements between the parents and the groom as he goes to the bride's parents' house. So he goes there first. But then what would happen is the bridegroom would leave with the bride and with, you know, everyone who's part of the, uh, the bride's household, and there would be a procession from the bride's parents' house back to his own dwelling, the groom's house. And so when you get back to the groom's house, there's a wedding feast. Uh, there is kind of the, the kind of culmination of the wedding ceremony where they, it is very pictorially represented that this woman is now under this man's household. That is the idea. And now this reference to lamps or torches, the word is actually most often used both in the Old Greek Old Testament and in the New Testament for torches, uh, which is kind of different than we normally think about this parable. We think of maybe a little lamp with a little bit of oil. Well, probably the idea is that of torches, because what would happen, or it seems like what would happen is the movement from the bride's parents' house all the way back to the groom's house, there was a torchlight procession. Remember, it's dark. It's dark out, and so there's this procession from uh, the bride's parents' house to the groom's house, but it was by torchlight, and that's the idea here. Uh, the ten virgins, it's not so much their, their virginity is not so much being emphasized, it's their age. So these girls are probably about 12 to 16 years old, unmarried. They're not necessarily bridesmaids. Uh, they're not necessarily uh, uh, slaves of, the, uh, uh, of the, the groom. They're just invitees from the village, it seems like. But you notice they have a job. They have a particular job. They're to bring their torches because they're going to be part of this whole torchlight procession that's going from the, uh, uh, bride's, uh, the bride's parents' house to the groom's house. Now, we have something kind of sort of similar to this on a very small, a smaller scale. If you've ever been to a wedding recently and maybe, you know, there's this kind of uh, at the end when the, the bride and groom are leaving and maybe you form kind of like a tunnel, you know, people on each side and they go to the getaway car. And I've seen, I've been to at least one wedding recently where they did this. They handed out sparklers, right? Hand out sparklers and kind of form this procession uh, to the car. Well, it's sort of like that, but this is on a way larger scale, right? This is whole village. This is, you've got these torches. Now, how does a torch work? How does a torch work? You guys know this from watching 
uh, Indiana Jones movies, right? You've got the, the, the stick, and you wrap it with some uh, cloth, and maybe you douse it in some oil so that it burns well, right? You douse the, thing, the rags in some oil, you light it on fire, and it burns to illuminate the way. Well, that's the idea of what these virgins have. They have a torch. Uh, it's supposed to be doused in oil to, uh, to then form the light necessary to make this procession from uh, the, the, the bride's parents' house to the groom's house. Now, all of that would have just jumped into people's minds when they heard the scenario, what Jesus is talking about. We had to do a little bit of work, and that's, we don't have all the details from the first century, but that seems the likely scenario that Jesus is talking about. Now, we learn something about these 10 virgins, these 10 girls. Look at verse 2. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. Now, why, uh, why, are they, why are five considered foolish and why are five considered wise? Well, Jesus explains that in verse 3 and 4. For when the foolish took their torches, they took no oil with them. But the wise took containers of oil with their torches. Okay? So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, all right, we got five foolish, we got five wise. Uh, why are they considered foolish? They're considered foolish because they didn't bring any oil like at all. Now think about that, especially with the idea that these are torches. Um, okay, if maybe, maybe you, uh, uh, maybe you, if you just take the stick and the little, you know, fabric that you wrap around your stick and you don't douse it in oil, uh, that's not going to work so well, is it? Now maybe, maybe these five, maybe they douse their stick in oil before they leave home. They say, ah, it's going to be fine. I'll just douse it in oil. We'll go to the procession. It'll all work out just fine. Um, but the wise, what do the wise do? The, their wisdom is in thinking ahead and preparing, and they bring a, a bucket of oil. That's kind of the idea. It's, it's not so much a flask. It's just a container. That's all the word means. It's just a container of oil. Well, what's the container of oil? Therefore, so you can douse your torch, light it on fire. If it starts to run out, you can douse it again, and you can keep going. So that is the wisdom and the foolishness of these girls. I will draw your attention to something all the way through verse 4. There is nothing in the text that says they've lit their torches yet. There's absolutely nothing in the text that says they've lit their torches. They just brought them. In fact, I'll argue that they don't light their, um, their torches till verse 7, which is different than sometimes how we read this parable. But it seems to fit with the whole scenario of the torchlight procession. So these wise and these foolish virgins, they have a role to play in this ceremony that's been given to them, that's been entrusted to them. They bring their torches along. Some uh, bring oil, wisely so, and the foolish ones do not. Now what happens? Verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed. Now, where are they at? They're probably at the bride's parents' house. That's where the groom goes first to pick up the bride from the parents. But like I said, uh, there would be negotiation time. There would be kind of this settlement and this haggling uh, over, or it could be over the final kind of bride gifts and dowry and all that sort of stuff. So it kind of makes sense that maybe the bridegroom could be delayed. We're not necessarily told that that's what's going on, but he's delayed nonetheless, and that could definitely happen. Now, notice this. While that's happening, while the bridegroom is delayed, they all, all 10 of them, become drowsy and slept. Now, we make another note here. Their wisdom or their foolishness is not whether they slept. There's nothing negative about them sleeping, okay? 
So sometimes you might hear, well, okay, that's a bad thing. No, not in the context of the parable. It's just what happened. It's just what happened to both the wise and the foolish. But what happened? Verse 6, but in the middle of the night, it's not so much that it's a definite time like midnight, like 12 midnight. When we hear the word midnight, we're thinking 12 12 o'clock, right? Uh, Remember, they measured time. They measured time from sunset to sunup. So the night to them was sunset to sunup, and they're just saying sometime during the middle of the night, not necessarily a clock time, just sometime during the middle of the night, there was a cry, a shout. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now, the virgins have already gone out to meet him. They have a role in this procession. They are probably at or somewhere near the bride's parents' house waiting for him to exit and to form part of this torchlight procession. That's what's going on. This cry that's going out, like I said, this village, or, uh, 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 weddings of this type are more like a village affair, like a whole big deal. So probably the cry is to the village as a whole or any invitees to the wedding feast that's about to happen. Hey, he's coming out. Come on. Let's, let's get this party started is the idea. He's come out to meet him. Come out to meet him. Now, the virgins are already there. They're already waiting with their torches um, that they've brought. They know they're, they have this job as part of the torchlight procession. Verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and put their torches in order. That's literally how it reads. Not so much trimmed their lamps, but they put their torches in order. What does that mean? Doused it in oil, lit it on fire, it's time to go. That's when they light their torches. They brought them along this whole time, but now the bridegroom's coming out. Uh, we're ready to go. Our job is, uh, it, it, we're ready to go with our job. So they get their torches all ready to go. They light them on fire to start the procession. That is the idea. But what happens? Verse 8, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our torches are going out. Well, no, duh. (laughs) You didn't bring any oil, meaning what? Either they just doused their torch at home with whatever oil they had on hand. So maybe they have a little bit on their torch uh, but, um, or they just have a stick with like material wrapped around it, not doused in oil. Either of those scenarios, their torches start to go out. Meaning either you're just burning through the material on the torch. It's like, uh, this isn't working. Or uh, maybe the oil is dried out if they doused it at home before they came. In any case, the torch is going out. But this is their own fault because they didn't bring oil with them. Like the, an essential thing to a torch. Okay, Uh, you know what this reminded me of as I was thinking about this. This is like group projects in school. You ever been at a group project in school? And, uh, you know, maybe you're an A type and you're like, oh, I'm going to get a good grade. Right. And so like uh, one or two or three are doing all the work in the group and they're they're doing what they should do. And then who knows where the other people in the group are uh, all semester or all quarter. And then they show up at the last minute and say, hey, can, can you can you help me out with this? That's what's going on here. I mean, that's kind of the scenario, right? This is a job that we've been called to do. It's a very important job because this is like torchlight procession of the bride and groom from the bride's parents' house all the way to the groom's home. This is a big deal. This is about bringing honor to the groom and the bride, celebrating with them. It's a joyous event. This is their job. This is what they've been called to do. And so these foolish virgins, they say, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Our torches are going out. 
Verse 9, but the wise answered saying, since there will certainly not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So the wise perceive whatever the situation is with the oil and all of that, they perceive there's not going to be enough. So if there's not enough to spread around, what does that mean? If we play out that scenario, suppose they did share the oil with the foolish virgins. They perceive there's not going to be enough. What's going to happen? You're in the middle of your torchlight procession with the bride and the groom, and it goes dark. It's a disaster for the wedding. And you need to think, it's not just like, oh, that's a bad idea, or that's a bummer. Uh, This is an honor-shame culture. Unlike ours, ours is not so much an honor-shame culture, but this is an honor-shame culture. And if you've got the bride and groom, this is a whole village event, and they didn't, it looks like the bride and groom didn't plan their wedding well enough to have enough light to, in the middle of this whole thing, it would bring great shame to the bride and groom for that to happen. And so what do the wise say? It's like, no, there's not enough for us and for you. you. You better go into the dealers and buy for yourselves. The wise make the right call. They're not being selfish. They are looking towards, this is our job. And it would be better to have half the lights than none of the lights. If we have no light, that brings a shame to the groom. And so they say, go, go to the, the oil dealers. Now, remember, this is a village event, so maybe the oil dealers are already awake, or maybe they have to go, uh, the foolish have to go, knock on their door, wake them up, buy some oil, come back, whatever the case. And they do that, verse 10, and while they, that's the foolish virgins, were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready, key word right there, Really, literally, those who were prepared. Those who were prepared. That's the wise virgins. They are recharacterized here as prepared. They went in. They completed the procession, ending at the groom's house. They went in with him, the groom, to the marriage feast. So the marriage feast, back at the groom's house, it would start. This is the middle of the night, but they would start it in the middle of the night. And the feast would really carry on for seven days or so. It's not just going to happen that night. It's just the start of the festivities, and it's just going to keep going for several days, probably at least. So the wise, they follow in procession. They do their job. They go to the marriage feast, this joyful celebratory event, and the door was shut, which is kind of a punctuation to say, kind of a note of finality. Door shut. Guests are in. We're going. Now, what happens to our foolish virgins? Well, verse 11, we find out. Afterward, so evidently they've gone to the dealers, they bought the oil, they're hurrying back. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Sir, sir, open to us. Now, like I said, these are probably just wedding guests. They're not necessarily uh, uh, slaves to the groom which if we use a translation like Lord or Master, we kind of convey. But we've seen this word for, this is the word kurios in Greek, and it can just mean a polite address like sir. And these are the, these are the foolish virgins. They had this big old role in this wedding procession, but they couldn't take part in it because they had to go buy oil. But now they're back to the wedding feast. They're back to the groom's house, and they're knocking on the door. Sir, sir, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now let's think about that response for a second. 
I don't think this is a response of, I have no idea who you are. Like, I, I don't know your identity. This is the sort of language you use when you're uh, disavowing someone, when you're repudiating someone, when you are not acknowledging someone. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture. And what is going on here? Well, these virgins, these foolish virgins, have shamed the bridegroom. They had a job. They weren't prepared. And the groom and the bride had half the torches they were supposed to have. So what is this? This is a repudiation. I don't know you. Because it's not so much, I mean, they could have just waited till daytime. Remember, the wedding feast is still going on, and he could have let them in. And you're like, well, why didn't you just let him in, right? It's not that big of a deal. Well, it's because the shame that has been brought on him by these virgins. And then Jesus draws, he jumps out. So all of that from verse 1 to verse 12 is the picture of the story, the imagery of the story. Jesus draws his conclusion for his disciples. He's talking to disciples in verse 13. Stay awake, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. Now that's the refrain that's been sounding since verse 36 in chapter 24. You don't know. Only the Father knows. So what do you do? You stay awake or stay alert. Now obviously in this context, it's not literally staying awake. Both the wise and the foolish fell asleep. It's more the idea of be prepared, be alert. And in the context of this parable, the alertness is shown by preparation ahead of time, preparation ahead of time before the coming. Now we've gone through all the imagery of the parable. What are the correspondences, right? Because this is how parables work. We got the imagery of everyday life. What does that correspond to in reality? Well, given the context of what Jesus has been talking about, he said this is like the kingdom of heaven. It's like the Son of Man coming. So we are to understand that the arrival of the groom is like the coming of the Son of Man. When he exits the bride's parents' house, and he's there for his procession into his own home, in his own domain, that's like the coming of the Son of Man. What about the entrance to the wedding feast, right? You're going into this wedding feast. Well, that imagery has already been well established, not only in Matthew, but also in even in the Old Testament and intertestamental Judaism, the idea of the messianic feast, the idea that God's chosen king from the line of David, he's going to establish his kingdom and there's going to be joy and restoration. And it's going to be like a feasting and it's likened to a wedding feast. And so the entrance into the wedding feast is likened to entrance into the kingdom. Remember, that's what Jesus has been praying, been portraying all along. Entering the kingdom is future, the full culmination of, of the restoration of the world and the king reigning on his throne and his people with him. It's likened to a wedding feast. That's entrance into the kingdom. We can do a little bit more before we have to do some harder work. Five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. The virgins represent professing disciples. How do I know that? Because verse 13 is addressed to the disciples. That's the lesson the disciples are supposed to learn from hearing this parable. And so Jesus is likening the virgins to professing disciples. But since we got five wise virgins, those are true prepared disciples. And then the five foolish virgins are false unprepared disciples. 
There's been this notion all along in Matthew that, that, yeah, you might be a professing disciple, but that doesn't mean you're a real one. And the real ones, the genuine disciples here show that they're real by their preparation. Now that, that's, those are pretty well, I mean, that's not too contested, what we've just said as far as the correspondence is. What about the rest of it? What's the deal with the oil? What is this preparation? What's happening? Do we get any other help with this? Well, in fact, we do. Look back at verses 11 and 12 and listen very carefully. Afterward, the other virgins, the foolish virgins, came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, if you've read through Matthew and or if you've been with us through this whole series, that should sound very, very familiar should remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Go back to Matthew 7. Matthew 7 is the end, the concluding portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember the Sermon on the Mount is also primarily directed towards disciples. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about what, what does kingdom righteousness look like? What does it look like to live righteously, righteous actions, good deeds, uh, it, what does it look like to live as a citizen of the kingdom? And I'll take, draw your attention as Jesus is drawing his conclusion. He's, he's calling his disciples to action. Um, I'll draw your attention to verse 21 through 23. Let's start there. This is what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who's going to enter then? but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we see a strong connection between the language that Jesus is using in his parable in Matthew 25 and what is being portrayed here. In fact, there's more than that. We had five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. Well, look at the very next paragraph in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So we got wise and foolish again. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it." The context in the imagery of Matthew 7 is the same context as Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus says, you better live as a kingdom citizen. You better live righteously, looking forward, looking ahead to entering the kingdom, looking ahead to judgment. That's the imagery of the storm there in Matthew 7, is the imagery of judgment. The coming of the Son of Man is a day of salvation and a day of judgment. We've seen that very clearly. Even going back to last week, Jesus compared the coming of the Son of Man like the days of Noah, like a flood coming in judgment. So what does this all mean? Well, in Matthew 7, what is the distinguishing mark between the wise and the foolish, between a true disciple and a false disciple? 
Are you going to do what Jesus says? Notice in the case of the builders, on the, uh, the, the case of the builders, the distinguishing mark was not whether you heard Jesus' words. They both heard Jesus' words. But are you going to do them? Or to use another phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, are you going to do the Father's will? To do the Father's will, to obey the Father, means you listen and do Jesus' words. So what is, what is, if we go back to the parable of the virgins, what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about being prepared for his arrival as the groom, as the son of man coming in judgment. What is the preparation? The preparation that Jesus is alluding to is obedience to him. Essentially what he is saying is if you're a professing disciple and you don't do what I say, it's like you bringing a torch with a little bit of fabric on it with no oil. It's foolish. What is Jesus looking for from his disciples on that day? He's looking for kingdom citizens. Now, let's be clear about this. What, what, how does Jesus portray salvation in the book of Matthew? He portrays it like this. Everyone is destined for God's judgment. Everyone is worthy of God's wrath because when we sin, it's not just doing a naughty thing. It is slapping the infinitely holy, worthy God who has created every one of us and deserves our worship in the face. It is an infinitely shameful offense. So we all deserve God's wrath and we're all headed for God's wrath, except that God has extended an offer of amnesty, an offer of peace, an offer of reconciliation through the Messiah. How so? The Messiah is going to die for his people, those who will entrust themselves to him, those who will repent. What is repentance? Turning allegiance from sin and self and, uh, and entrusting oneself totally to Jesus, full allegiance to him, which means you're going to walk. You're going to follow. That's what a disciple is, a follower of Jesus, an obeyer of Jesus. And so the life of faith starts the life of a disciple starts with repentance and faith, believing totally and only what Jesus does on the cross and dying for his people is going to assuage the Father's wrath. And only Jesus' human, lived in flesh righteousness is going to be accredited to a disciple's life such that they can be accounted righteous in God's eyes. But Jesus doesn't only count people as righteous, he makes them righteous. That's the kind of salvation that Jesus offers. Not only, yes, you in the court of law have been justified. That is absolutely true. And it is absolutely based on Jesus' work and Jesus' work alone. But Jesus' salvation will change your whole life. Jesus will make you righteous. Because what he will do is through your connection with him, through brought, being brought into union with him, through repentance and faith, he's going to send his Holy Spirit to indwell you. And the Holy Spirit's going to uh, go to town in your life and change you such that you live the righteous kingdom life that is displayed in Matthew 5 through 7 and elsewhere in Matthew. So if you show up to the day of judgment without righteous living, good deeds, you're not getting into heaven. Not because those things are, you're, you have worked them or earned God's favor at all. No, the idea is because of being brought into salvation by Jesus, being connected with Jesus, he justifies you and he changes you. 
such that if you don't have any desire for righteousness, no desire to kill sin, no desire to follow Jesus, no preparation, you're just kind of kind of stroll up to the day of judgment, say, I'm here, take me. Having not lived a life that, having lived a life that shames Jesus, that doesn't glorify Jesus at all, it's like that wicked, those foolish virgins not having any oil. It's pretty much essential to what it means to be a disciple. Now, what's the whole idea with like, they're trying to transfer it? Like, hey, give us some of your oil. Well, think about this, right? Imagine, imagine Jesus coming back today. Suppose he comes back today as the son of man in glory, in majesty, to judge everyone. And I don't mean just judge in the sense of condemnation. I mean judge as in rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked. Imagine that. And imagine you see that and you know this reality that only those who have been changed by Jesus, who live a righteous life and do good works because they are bound to Jesus. Suppose you understand that reality and yet your life has had none of that. Oh yeah, you may say, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my master, but you just live however you want. And then he comes. What would you feel like? Oh no. I'm not prepared. Uh, There's no time to be righteous. There's no time to live how Jesus called me to live. Well, maybe I can go to my fellow disciples. Hey, 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 you're a good person. You, I mean, you're good. Uh, Jesus made you who you are. You're living for Jesus. You, you have true faith in him and he's changed your whole life. Uh, you, you think I can, you know, can, can you somehow count some of those works that you've done to me? Can I kind of ride your coattails in? That's not how it works. One disciple can't transfer living and doing to another disciple. What does preparation look like? Preparation looks like pursuing righteousness, pursuing righteous living, pursuing good deeds, not to earn God's favor, but because you belong to Jesus, because you love Jesus. How can you be wisely prepared to meet Jesus at his return so that it is like the joy of being part of a wedding procession heading into a wedding feast? Isn't that a beautiful picture? Like that's, that's for a true believer. That's what it looks like is joy. When Jesus comes again, yes, I want to go out and meet him and I want to welcome him back because this is what I've been longing for, a renewed heavens and a renewed earth and a just king reigning over me and over all the world's. It's going to be like that torchlight procession, the joy of that, and going into a wedding feast. That's the joy of heaven. The joy of heaven being knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, enjoying good things with Jesus on a renewed heavens and a new earth. How can you be ready for that? How can you welcome that day like that? Well, it starts with what? First, what we've been saying, what Jesus has been saying, what John the Baptist has been saying all along, repentance and faith. Lay down arms. Repent. Turn your allegiance from sin and self. Stop living for yourself. Stop calling your own shots. Stop trying to justify yourself. Stop trying to say that you're okay. Lay down arms. 
and entrust yourself totally and fully to the sufficient son, to Jesus, who lived the righteous life, a human righteous life that you and I could not live, who died in place of his people to assuage the father's wrath on the cross. That is where it starts, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith brings you into union with Christ, bound to Christ by his spirit. He will give his spirit to live in you, to dwell in you. And not only will you be counted righteous, you will be made righteous. The union because of the spirit of God in your life will produce obedience to Jesus, doing his and the father's will, doing good works before others, putting off sin. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Is it my work or is it God's work? Both. In terms of not initial salvation, but in terms of your walking. What does Paul say in Philippians 2, 12 and 13? Work out, not work for, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Strive for righteousness. Strive for obedience. Be zealous for good works. Why? Because God is at work within you because you are bound to Christ through repentance and faith. That's what Jesus is seeking. That's preparation for his coming. Let's frame this all in another way. Don't think you can stay as you are if you claim to be known by Jesus. Now, we have a song, don't we? Come as you are. And that song is true. Come to Jesus just as you are, because who you are is a sinner, and only Jesus can save. Come totally as you are, but don't stay as you are. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are, because Jesus is going to change you. That's the salvation he brings. If you see no change in your life, no desire to put off sin, no hunger for righteousness, don't think that Jesus will welcome you to the feast. Don't think that another disciple can be prepared for you. This is especially the danger of being raised in a Christian home. If you're a child or a kid of being raised in a Christian home, it's like, well, my parents love Jesus. They follow Jesus. And, and since I'm their child, I'll just, I'll just be okay, right? No, a disciple cannot transfer living for Jesus to another disciple. Or maybe it's like this, don't think you can put obedience off. Maybe it's like, you know, I know I should be striving towards obedience. I know I should be striving harder to follow Jesus because I love him. I know I should be doing that. I know I should be doing it, but I've just got so many other things to worry about right now. I'm just going to put that off. Don't think you can put obedience off because one day Jesus will come back and it'll be too late. It'll be too late. Surrender to Jesus and his rule over your life and seek for his spirit to change you. Now, you might be here today and you might be struggling with assurance. So when I hear this, this is like, oh, you feel crushed, right? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I belong to Jesus. I I love him. I want to follow him. But man, I see all the sin in my life. I have persistent guilt. I'm struggling. Well, here's what you do with hearing this. If you're struggling with assurance, do I really belong to Jesus or not? Don't start with the deeds. Start with the Savior. Start with delighting in and trusting in the bridegroom. That's where you start. 
Please don't mishear anything I'm saying this morning like, okay, I need to work hard and so God will be pleased with me. I am not saying that. I am saying that you come to Jesus as the sufficient bridegroom, as the sufficient son, the one mediator between God and man, and you entrust yourself totally and only on him, and he will justify you. He will bring you into relationship with himself. He will bring you into relationship with the triune God, and you will love him and delight in him, and then that, all of that will fuel you and push you towards obedience. So if you're here struggling with assurance, it's like, I don't know if I'm good enough. I'm not, I don't know if I'm, uh, uh, that's not what you should be hearing. You should be hearing, look to Jesus, trust him, and let him change you through his spirit. So yeah, you are obedient, not perfectly, but in measure, consistently preparing for the day he is coming back. And maybe you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus at all. It's like, I am living for me. I will be here, I'll sit through sermons, I will, uh, I'll please my family, whatever, but I will make it on my own efforts. I will pull myself up by my bootstraps. I will do the effort that's necessary for God to be pleased with me. Or maybe you don't even think that, you're just like, I will, I will stand on my own merits or fall by my own sins, it doesn't matter. You are headed for Jesus' judgment. Please do not take that path. Because Jesus doesn't, you can see it here, he wants disciples to enter into his joy. He's not a miser. He's not a, a meanie in the sky or a monster. He wants you to, you to escape his own wrath and enter into his own joy. But it comes only through repentance and faith. It comes only through surrender and entrusting yourself to Jesus and being changed by the Spirit of God so that when he comes, it's like that torchlight procession into the wedding feast. Keep awake. Stay alert. Be prepared. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the good king the rightful king. Lord, we look at our world and it's a mess. We've made a mess of it. It's our own sin. It's not those people out there. It's our own sin. We are corrupt. We are wicked. We deserve your wrath. We deserve an eternity of hell, your fury unleashed on us forever because we have slapped you in the face. We have spit on your beauty and majesty, and we deserve it. And yet you in compassion and in grace have died, have loved your enemies and died for a sinful people such that we can be a wise people, no longer foolish, no longer driven by our own lusts and desires, but driven out of our love in you, our Savior. Lord, help us to be a people zealous for good works, zealous to live righteously because we belong to you already. And Lord, may we be prepared and may we honor you and not shame you with our lives. May we be prepared for your coming. We long for it. Come, Lord Jesus, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with me for a benediction from Philippians. Philippians 1. Philippians 1.9, Paul prays this for the Philippians, and it's the prayer for all of us. 
And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Church, you are sent.